0: This is the Neurosurgery Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, we're joined by Sharag Gandhi. Sharag is the Program Director at Westchester Medical Center, New York Medical College. Sharag, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike.
2: Great to be on.
1: Great. Why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about where Westchester is? Because to me, I'm always confused. Is it in New York City? Is it outside New York City? Is it upstate? Sure.
2: Absolutely. So, you know, Westchester is the first county north of New York City. So we sit about 10 miles north of Manhattan, uh, located in uh, a very diverse area. Uh, You know, every mile that you go north in Westchester becomes increasingly more rural. So it's a really nice combination uh, as you get closer to the city of access to New York City. Uh, and then as you go north, you know, you start having orchards and horse farms. So, uh, you know, where I'm located currently on the campus of Westchester Medical Center and New York Medical College, uh, we sit a little bit on a hill between a couple of highways. This time of year, it's beautiful. We have trees changing colors. And you know, overall, it's really a, a great, diverse place to live.
3: Yeah, you know, I actually have a sister who lives in Chappaqua, so I'm a little bit familiar with the area and the landscape. And as you describe it, it is a beautiful place, especially this time of year. Um, Maybe for the applicants who haven't had a chance to visit that region, talk a little bit about the campus, about the hospital system and what it's like for the residents.
2: Sure. Uh, So, you know, a lot of changes in uh, all positive ways have been going on in regards to the campus uh, and the health system. So historically, Westchester Medical Center was a county hospital, a single county hospital here in Valhalla. And over the last five years, we've acquired nine other hospitals that are spread geographically about two hours in any direction, north, northwest, and west. Um, so in a very short period of time, have a pretty robust uh, geographical catchment area. And uh, on the campus itself, a significant amount of investments have been made Uh, in terms of the physical plant. So the original tower still is here, but to that there's a children's hospital that's about 10 years old. Uh, It's attached, but it's a standalone uh, children's hospital. Uh, Everything pediatrics is based there. Uh, We have a brand new glass ambulatory care pavilion, uh, and they're just breaking ground uh, in a couple of months on a five-story ICU tower um internally everything also has been significantly upgraded all the older parts of the hospital some of which which actually go back to world war one have all also been significantly renovated in fact where i'm talking to you right now used to be the original hospital for world war one soldiers as they were coming back from the front uh uh, if you were to see it now it uh, would be unrecognizable
1: So, you know, I remember the program being called Valhalla, and that was historically what it was called, but it sounds like it's changed a lot. Have you guys undergone some kind of new merger or some kind of new health system um, reboot? Can you tell us about what's happened lately? Yes, of course. Uh, So the residency
2: programs here at the Valhalla campus historically were sponsored by New York Medical College, and then three years ago, Westchester Health Network, which was Always, the teaching institution for that residency took over the neurosurgery program and a majority of the other residency programs. So the environment very much is the same, but you know the oversight of the graduate medical education has changed. Uh, there's still a very robust partnership between both the institutions. In fact, uh, you know I've I've been here now four years, and what I gather is that this is the uh, you know most. Uh, most uh, uh, collaborative uh, growth time period between the two institutions in a very long time. So we're here in a pretty golden time period for the institution.
3: Yeah, it sounds like it. And I I wonder between the new buildings and the changes to the healthcare system and, and this expansion that you've been describing, how does that translate to resident training in terms of case volume, case diversity, and even research opportunities?
2: Yeah. So, you know, all of what I've described is, you know, kind of a foundation um, for parallel growth that's taken in all the things uh, that have happened and all the things you've been asking about. So the residency program, when I inherited it about four years ago, uh, has been in place with one resident a year since 1990. And that was largely under Dr. Morali's guidance as the chair and program director. And so what I inherited was a really, clinically busy, uh, family knit, uh, extremely close residency program. And, you know, taking all those positive foundations, what we've really worked on over the last four years is to, you know, diversify all aspects of the clinical training, add a much more robust research and educational component to it. Uh, So maybe I could talk briefly about each of those. Uh, The residency program three years ago, we were given the approval by the RRC to move to two residents a year. So we're now entering our third cycle where we are taking two residents. And the plan over the next four years is to eventually get to a full complement of 14 with increasing uh, electives and diversity plan for each of the years uh, as we implement. Uh, from We've added additional training site at a hospital at a large at uh, uh, academic and private practice teaching hospital in Northern New Jersey, which is about 20 miles away from us, Hackensack Medical Center. And that also is a multi-specialty group of about 13 neurosurgeons. uh, That's really added a significant value to our senior resident uh, operative experience. Uh, From a research perspective, you know, we've completely changed the perspective, I think, and and focus for the residents. Uh, It's become a very essential uh, part of every weekly and monthly discussion. Uh, we now have an IRB and trials coordinator uh, over the last two years. Our academic and resident research productivity has skyrocketed. Uh, you know, this, this year we're on pace, I think, for 70 peer reviewed publications, multiple textbooks coming out, uh, residents going to almost every meeting with lots of abstracts. So a very different feel than what existed previously. And then from an educational perspective, we've taken the good facets of the historical education and conferences and added a lot of diverse kinds of conferences. So not just didactic-based, but case-based discussion. Some of them are even attending run. Um, Every subspecialty now is represented in rotating conference schedules as well. Um, And we've also integrated a new mentoring program and engagement of previous faculty and alumni. So really kind of broad uh, expansion of the entire uh, residency experience.
1: That sounds great. And if you were to look at how the living situation is, is it, would you call, call it more urban, suburban, or more rural? Like I, I'm trying to get a feel for it because people aren't getting a chance to visit the campus. Is it more like a suburban feel?
2: Yeah, it uh, is most closely to a suburban feel. And most of the residents live uh, about 10, 15 miles from uh, the hospital at most, or 10, 15 minutes, excuse me. Um, and within that encasement, you're really looking at more of a suburban feel, absolutely. But again, access from here to Grand Central Station is, you know, uh, 20 minutes by an express train. So it's uh, best of the both best of both worlds.
3: Yeah. So with that in mind, maybe you could talk a little bit about what life is like for the residents outside of the hospital in the the few spare
2: minutes you allow them to uh, enjoy their time off duty. Sure. Uh, well, I, first of all, I, I allow them. All the time that the uh, RC and ACGME required them to have, Rob. of course, of course. Uh, but you know, the unique thing about our residency program is that you know the, each of the residences, uh, they are actually a very close-knit group. And as we expand, that's one of the things I really tried to keep an eye on is how to maintain that family feel to the program as we get bigger. It's a challenge that I'm sure, obviously, you guys understand. Um, The residents themselves, because they're so close knit, spend a lot of time with each other outside of um, work environment. And, and, you know, that I think builds just that much of a stronger bond and camaraderie when you show up to work. Uh, In terms of it's a great place to raise family. It's a great place to be uh, single and have access to uh, all, all types of social activities, outdoor access, hiking, fishing kayaking, skiing, everything that you could want from a, um, you know, extracurricular perspective is absolutely available here as well. And of course, it's a pretty amazing restaurant scene, both locally and in access to New York City. Great, well, Dr. Gandhi, we wanna thank you for your
3: time this morning coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast and helping the applicants this year get an inside look into what neurosurgery is like at the Westchester Medical Center, New York Medical College. Thank you so much, sir.
2: Thank you. Uh, can I ask uh, you guys? You know, the one thing I, I did want to just put a plug in for is the fact that you know the trauma center and comprehensive stroke center is there somewhere that I can put that in. Right now, tell us about it. Sure. So, uh, you know, we we've historically always been a, a level one trauma center uh, as a safety nest hospital for the region. And more recently, we're now a comprehensive stroke center and a level four epilepsy center. So, Hmm. you know, I think that's hopefully reflective of a rapidly expanding subspecialty representation here. Uh, You know, we're doing state-of-the-art neurovascular work. Uh, Our tumor section is growing with applications such as Omniscient, we're one of the first sites in the world, in fact, for that technology. Uh, We've introduced robotic spine surgery pediatric epilepsy for the first time in the uh, Hudson Valley area ever, Um, LIT, pediatric and adult peripheral nerve, and most recently, a functional DBS program. So these are just some of the major advancements that have taken place here in the last four years. Phenomenal. Well, I'm glad that we got that in so the applicants are aware of it.
3: Uh, Thanks again, Dr. Gandhi, for coming on the show.
2: My pleasure. Thanks uh, so much for having me today.
4: Welcome to another episode of the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, we're absolutely pleased to welcome Dr. Gustavo Lozardo, Program Director at the University of Mississippi, to the podcast. Dr. Lozardo, welcome to the podcast.
5: Thank you for your invitation. I'm glad to be here. And uh, yeah, I'm Gustavo Lozardo. I'm uh, a Venezuelan native, came to the United States after medical school on a J-1 visa and uh, made a... Uh, a career in neurosurgery in the state of Mississippi and made a life here.
4: That's great. Uh, and just before the podcast, you and I were talking about how you trained at Mississippi. So you know more about this program than most other people. Uh, and one thing that we mentioned that's pretty unique about this program is it has something similar to a transition to practice year in a fellowship year in year seven. I know most programs don't have that anymore because of the new ACGME requirements. But can you explain what that is to our listeners as not many of them may know?
5: Well, the until a, a, a few years back, programs were six years. So many residents, we were transitioned to a seventh year. So the seventh year, we, we uh, allow a great deal of freedom to the residents where they have you know some minimal faculty input, but had a, a great deal of freedom on cases that were unreferred or uh, things they, they wish to do that it enhances specifically the field of interest that they had. Um, as we transitioned to seventh year, Now, as you know, all programs are seven years. Um, It's not as uh, it's not exactly as it was in the past. Definitely, the faculty is still involved, but by the seventh year, the chief residents have attained a degree of uh, competency that they require minimal supervision. Uh, You know, we discuss the cases pre-op. We are in the OR with them, Uh, but essentially, the majority or totality of the cases is done. Uh, by then with minimal supervision and input, and we share the uh, post-op decision-making as well. So it's not really as it was when it was six years. But the other thing that tends to happen is as the residency got uh, longer, uh, the dilemma of fellowships uh, comes And many years ago, uh, before this actually uh, tended to be a trend. uh, I started training people in folded. I, I don't believe in fellowships after the prescribed time for residency, as I think that uh, that is a failure, uh, or except in some remedial situations, but uh, you should, or we should, make every effort to accommodate the career aspirations of a resident during the prescribed time. I think seven years allow for certain certain things. For example, you know ICU certainly, but uh, vascular, endovascular is the most uh, typical. Uh, epilepsy or some functional. Uh, things that you wish to do that will you know put your career in the path that you desire and will enhance you, bring you a higher level of, time of graduation, make it make you more uh, marketable, I guess, if that is a word. Um, so I try to uh, make an effort to accommodate uh, those things. I don't believe that for for example, the nasal neurosurgery you would need a, a, a fellowship. Uh, endoscopy. I don't think you need a fellowship for that. I mean, we do that you know, during the regular residency. So uh, I don't believe in a fellowship for skull base afterwards either. I think if you do it, it's because your residency did not provide the necessary experience. So in a way, I see it as a remedial action.
4: No, you know, you bring up a good point because I think most people agree that by the end of your seven years of residency, you should be at least competent in, you know, the basic neurosurgical cases and maybe only a few things that are very rare, you know, should you really have to go to a fellowship to train for. That being said, could you touch on a little bit about the operative experience and the training at Mississippi, specifically how early do your residents get into the OR, how much time are they in the OR, and how much of the floor work is done
5: by mid-level providers? All right. So, uh, the floor is mainly done by uh, nurse practitioners and the primary patients. The consults I do require the residents personally have to be the ones I interact with other services and manage. And uh, regardless, they have to be fully aware and they run the list with us with every faculty every day. Um, to to put it in perspective, uh, as I assumed the program directorship of the program 2017, one of the things I wanted to ensure is that. By the end of your fourth year, you know, fifth year is going to be research or some other rotations if you're liking, but by the end of the fourth year, the residents should be able to manage what are truly strict neurosurgical emergencies with minimal supervision. So that implies that you have the intellectual capacity, you have the expertise with films, and, and you have the skills and the surgical prowess to execute them, correct, with minimal supervision. Um, so, it implies from the faculty that in your second and third year, you actually operate, that you are involved, that you develop the skills of handling soft tissue, handling bone, on decision making. It. So, it's generally overlooked that one of the critical portions early in your stages of neurosurgery is to develop critical thinking, to have a sound judgment, to have a stream of thought that is coherent to the point. That requires films, diagnosis, so sort of situational awareness of what's happening, how imme- the immediacy of things that need to be done, what, what has to be prioritized, what is within the realm of the possible. All these have to come. Now, just for what are truly neurosurgical emergencies, what comes to mind? An epidural hematoma, subdural hematoma, an ICH a laminectomy for a cow equina, for example, as you know, you're going to clip an aneurysm, you're not going to do it at an absolute emergency or let's say at a hematoma. That's something that you do, you know, sort of the next available date or that even if it's convenient, but it's not a, a, a definitely not a fourth year uh, level emergency. But uh, you should be able, uh, the way I phrase it is, if, you, if moonlighting is still existed, which largely does not, you should be able to manage an ER in neurosurgically, correct? correct. Um, so, but that puts the burden on the program and the faculty to make sure that you're able, okay? So that is a hard stop. If a resident were not able to do that, that would be a problem. Then uh, I believe, you know, if you look at history, skull base have become part of what we do, okay? The 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 majority of what we do in a skull base actually should be used every day there is nothing beyond the realm of human comprehension that uh, cannot be acquired for people that are skilled okay if you are skilled if you work in the lab and you have the cases which we will give you will give you the opportunity you should be able to wherever you go to do a, a orbital osteotomy to do an extradural middle false approach to do a posterior petrosal approach what is the hardest part of the posterior petrosal approach? Actually, the mastoidectomy, the one that neurosurgeons are less familiar. It's easy technically, but we are less familiar, right? Uh, beyond that, you're familiar with a subtemporal approach and with a retrosigmoid approach, right? So, if that is the case, then you'll understand that a posterior petrosal approach, which is sort of the pinnacle of skull base on complexity, the approach is not the problem. The problem is the microsurgical techniques to take a petroclival lesion out so um and and that you know there are things you can teach people and things that you cannot i always like to say that i can teach you kung fu but i cannot make you bruce lee so either you have some natural abilities and an interest and uh, or you do not and uh so i don't believe that if if uh if you're given the opportunity you're given the cases you have the lab you can read and study if If you do not learn skull base because it's outside of your capacities or it's not a field of interest so what are your fellowship afterwards You're not going to change that um, I think it, most programs in the United States with slight variations according to the preference of the surgeons, they do everything humanly possible to a to a, to a spine from you know occipital cervical c one twos transorals uh, cervical uh, thoracic you know you might change a little on every program regarding you know, more lateral approaches, perhaps. Maybe some programs might have more anterior approaches. But given the standards of the ACME and the evolution of the spine, I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of programs, overwhelming in the United States offer more than enough and sufficient experience on the spine, and, and we are no different. Um, being an academic institution, we do a lot in Florida. I know it's the case as well. A lot of spine trauma, as you know, uh, cranial trauma, maybe 20% is surgical, but in a spine trauma, maybe 20% is not surgical, right? We operate a lot more in, in, a, in a spine injury. So that is a, a, a great, the, the bread and butter of training or is a resident is spine trauma. I must say that. We, um, my philosophy has been, for example, if you want to train microsurgeon, that, that's my key point. My key point is microsurgery, correct? And, uh, and clear thinking and sound judgment. That's what I put my efforts personally when I train a resident. So one of the tools that have been negated nowadays of many people is uh, in cisternal surgery is aneurysm surgery. Sort of have been taken away for exclusive people who only be committed to this. And I still believe aneurysm surgery is a vital part of training a resident that wants to do cranial surgery. You know, cisternal surgery. Cisternal surgery, I mean, uh, uh, in counter distinction to glioma surgery, for example, right? So, you need uh, to be familiar with vessels to manage really comfortable if you're going to take tumors out. So, I, do, I, I still use aneurysm surgery as a tool of training of residents that are capable and interested and show commitment. But it, you do not have to be a vascular person for me, for, for you to see a, a clipping. Uh, every resident does. They're given the opportunity to the level of competence, right? Correct. Yeah.
4: You know, Dr. Lazardo, that was very well said. You know, I, it's very clear your commitment to neurosurgical education and fostering independence in your residence. So, of respect for your time, you know, we want to wrap up. Uh, thank you again for coming on the Neurosurgery po- Podcast and sharing more about your program. We appreciate it.
1: All right. Welcome back to the Nursery Podcast. We have been highlighting the nursery programs of America and Canada. And today we are joined by John Jane Jr. Uh, Many of you know John Jane Jr. and his late father uh, and the famous and storied program at UVA. Uh, John, welcome to the podcast.
6: Mike, JP, thanks for inviting me.
1: Now the history of the UVA residency training program and the process of selection is really the stuff of legend. So just for some of our listeners that may not know, there is a history of UVA being uh, more than seven years, up to eight or nine, depending on if you did a Ph.D., of traveling to New Zealand uh, for a year, as Bobby Stark, one of our uh, faculty members, did and met his uh, wife And there are so many things that were done at UVA that were different. Um, So maybe you could help us uh, catch up with the history and maybe give a little context to why UVA is a special place.
6: Well, uh, you're right. UVA has a long history of training residents. And, you know, it obviously dates back to my father when when he came to UVA in 1969. And UVA was a small program. Uh, did have a residency training program, but it was a small one. And he had had to decide, well, what am I going to try to do? And what are my priorities going to be? And what he simply decided was, well, what I'm going to try to do is develop one of the best neurosurgery training programs in the world. That's what I want to try to do. And he set out to do that. And over many years was was i think um very successful in doing that
0: well dr jane as uh i've talked about on the show a few times and anyone who's met me has heard me talk about i actually was fortunate enough to do a sub i rotation there at uva when i was uh, going through this process myself and i i would say very fortunate enough to be able to see the hospital meet and work with everyone there and see charlottesville so it's exciting for me to get this chance to talk with you again and to highlight the program from the inside. And so as, as Dr. Wang mentioned, there are a number of things that make UVA a very unique program, um, among which is the traveling to New Zealand, um, previously the relationship with the NIH. But I, I think the one of the things that struck me the most was the level of academic rigor and dedication to understanding and the intellectual side of what we do each day, including, of course, the famous Saturday academics. So maybe you could talk a bit for the applicants this year who won't have a chance to come visit and and see this firsthand as I did about just what the, the culture and the mindset of the UVA resident is as as approaching training in neurosurgery.
6: Well, so I, it's hard because I don't know other programs. It's so darn hard for me to say, well, how is, unique, how is UVA unique compared to other programs? I only know UVA, but I can tell you that what we do emphasize is resident ownership of patients. We celebrate uh, academic pursuit here and are constantly asking questions and trying to find answers and uh, and so I don't know how that's specifically unique to UVA. I think lots of programs do that and do that awfully well. Um, I guess the, uh, 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 an aspect of UVA that is unique is the international experience in New Zealand, but there are other programs that do that as well. It is, it is something that I think is, a, is one of the cornerstones of our program, though,
1: well, I mean, you know, maybe I'll help you out because you're being so humble. You're you're a uh, you're a Southern gentleman, and you know Charlottesville is a very genteel place. So, when I think about UVA, now I'm a USC guy. So USC had a parallel to UVA in many ways because for when I was in residency, Mike Apuzo controlled the Red Journal. Your father controlled the White Journal. It's still housed at Charlottesville, right? At least for now. And I think about the faculty members that were there during a time period where. I want to say the most chairmen uh, that have come out of any program it has to be UVA. And we can go through a long list of current and already retired chairpersons, not just chairmen, chairpersons uh, who, who came out of that residency training program. There must have been something unique there. And I think about the faculty. I think about you know Chris Shaffrey, my good friend, who's you know outgoing president of AANS. Mark Shaffrey, current chair. I think about Neil Cassell, who many people may not know has operated on some very, very prominent politicians, and I'll refrain from uh, any sort of HIPAA violations here. But the fact that that is not well known by 330 million Americans is shocking to me. Um, but anyways, we can go further at some later podcast. But I think faculty members like you and all the folks that are there in your relationship to NIH, it really is a special place. So, so maybe you can tell us about how it exists today, because I'm thinking about the UVA of maybe 15 years ago. How does it exist today in, in the ecosystem of neurosurgery?
6: Sure. So I, I, do, I do think we have very strong faculty. Again, I don't believe that that is unique to UVA. I do think that one of the reasons why people become faculty at UVA is because we are dedicated to the training of residents, that we view ourselves as a residency training program, that that is our mission. Of course, it's, our mission is the care of patients, but we very much view ourselves as a residency training program. And, and perhaps that is amongst our strengths, uh, but we carry some humility and humility doesn't mean that we slag ourselves. It simply means that we understand what our strengths are and, uh, and the places where we need to continue to get better. We know, we know ourselves. Well, with that in mind, you know, Ed, as we've
0: all mentioned, and, and I, I love the history and the romance of places like UVA, so I could wax poetic and, and talk about the, the tales of heroes that have come out of that place all day. But having talked about the history and, and talked about where you are today, as you said, you know your strengths, you know the weaknesses such as they are. Looking forward, Dr. Jane, what, what do you see for UVA in the years to come, perhaps on, a I don't know, a seven-year horizon?
6: Yeah, no, it's a, it is, it's, a, it's a big change that we are undergoing right now. So we have traditionally been a seven-year program, right, where the first three years are clinical, then four and five were lab research elective, then six was New Zealand, seven chief, right? That was, that was our, our old model. We are switching now to this new six plus one, model where we essentially are pulling PGY-5 out and putting it in the seventh year, right? So our residents will be doing the, their PGY-1 through 3 clinical, 4 research, with some exceptions, which we can talk about. And then New Zealand is going to happen 5, 6 chief, 7 is either for research or in so-called enfolded fellowships. Uh, And, uh, and so we'll see what kind of change that has that that comes with a sacrifice of two continuous years in the lab, right? And so you can't get something for nothing. And I think I'm excited to see I think on balance, that is the right, the right move for our program. But we'll see what consequence that has. And luckily, I'm young enough, I'm going to be able to uh, see the next 10 to 15 years and see what what consequence that has on our residency training. Because I know what our old system produced, right? I know how people finished that way. And we've, we've pivoted and moved to a, a different system and could not have one foot in the old and one foot in the new, had to go uh, all in. And that's what we've done.
1: So let me ask you about that because I think it's an important change. Um, in the past, you had a number of residents that did a PhD during their residency. So is that still a possibility? How does that alter this sort of six plus one uh, relationship with the training program?
6: So su- it was super tough in the past for residents to get PhDs during their residency. It happened occasionally, but was not at all something that we that we ever that we ever pushed to make. To make happen uh, during residency, I think that that um, and that that wasn't that wasn't an emphasis, but we did enjoy the two years in a row that had the possibility to do basic research. That that now that's that's just not possible. That's not part of our system. And and what if every neurosurgery program switched to that? that model? Uh, is that what programs are going to do? And what what impact might that have on our field in general um, uh, for what has been a field that benefits from academic output? We are an academic field, by and large. And, and does this mark a change? And I hope not, because I hope that if done right, this can be done incorrectly, but if done right, that six plus one model, if that plus one requires that those people are protected and actually have time for research, then people will be able to end their residency on an academic upswing, not just a clinical one. That's what, that's what my hope is. And, and, but you have to do it with your eyes open and know where are the pitfalls. Where can we mess this up? And a program like ours, I think, has a great chance of doing it well.
0: Well, we're just as excited as you to see how this all turns out, and we'll be keeping our eyes on it. Um, I wonder if, as we uh, reach the end of our conversation, we could talk a bit about Charlottesville itself as a place to live. You've obviously spent many years there. Um, I enjoyed the month that I was there. Many applicants, you know, are are concerned about. Uh, living in a, a, a college town, a small town, people coming from big cities. I found that charming. There's, you know, people like different kinds of places, but maybe you could speak a bit to what Charlottesville has to offer and what kinds of things the residents do in their free time.
6: Sure. You know, of course, I'm a ridiculously biased guy. I've lived, li- uh, of, of my course. 52 years, I've lived all but six years in Charlottesville. I, I love, I love the town, but, um, uh, uh, and so, of course there are great outdoors things we do have uh, to do Um, uh, and uh, there are as a college town it's a foodie town and uh, is a wonderful place to live that has no traffic nobody asks well how long is it going to be before you get to my house if you're picking me up because it's it's going to be about 10 minutes Um, you know there's always parking and yeah it's a it's a nice it's a nice life and a, uh, and a great place to live for seven years. Here's what I say about that, though. So I think Charlottesville is a great place and, a, and sure, I guess a selling point. But what I would say to applicants is you carry your happiness with you. And there are plenty of places that you would say, oh, boy, would I would I really want to live in that place for seven years? Well, as it turns out, you're learning to be a resident in neurosurgery. Your time is spent dedicated to neurosurgical training. And if I thought that I would get the best training in the worst city in the country, I would train at that city. Um, and so, listen, I think Charlottesville is a, is a great place. Obviously, I do. What on what podcast are you going to hear a program director say, that that their city is is terrible. It's not, not going to None <laughs> of the listeners are going to are going to hear that. And so, uh, <laughs> that's just simply my perspective. I, I, I wish we had time to talk about second looks, which I'm opposed to. But um, uh, but but I, I appreciate that we have a limited time here.
0: Sure. Well, well well said. Um, Good points all around regarding the city and just thinking about the cities. I'll personally vouch for the hiking around Charlottesville, uh, this beautiful countryside. But as you said, our time is limited today. We'll have to have you back on to talk about second looks and anything else. We we always love speaking with you, Dr. Jane. And of course, a good shout out we had before to Dr. Mark Shaffrey, who is a friend of the show and was on talking about rank lists last year. That'll be relevant for our listeners as well. Uh, But thank you for your time and coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast.
6: You betcha. Thank you, guys.
0: Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.